This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Talaga and Conrad, Intuition Knows What Best Wants to Happen. And the author is Joyce Anderson, and Joyce joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Joyce. Hi, Steve. Great to have you with us. Uh, we're going to learn a lot. You are an intuition educator. You have workshops, lectures, writings. You've been a radio show host, and we'll find out some more later about all of that. But let me read what you've written about your book. Talaga and Conrad is the journey of a young girl who begins her life full of potential and talent, but ends up overweight, overworked, a mother, and unhappily married. She must battle Conrad, king of comparison, to recover her buried talent and purpose for her life. And also there's a study guide included. So you're not going to just leave them hanging. You're going to help them. Everybody who's reading, you're going to help them along the way. <laughs> That's the plan. That's the yes. plan. Well, uh-huh. tell us about yourself, Joyce. How did you get involved in uh, becoming an intuition educator, and then why the book? Well, I worked in corporate life for about 16 years, and I kept hearing a lot of people, the ones who were doing all the work behind the scenes, that I wish I had talent. I don't have anything special, uh, me included. Um, so that kind of was always at the back of me. And then I decided to have children with my husband in the thirties and also had, while I raised my children, had a jazzercise franchise. So part of all of that, we're always this, this knowing that everyone is unique with a gift. And unless you're a famous pianist or surgeon or some kind of Einstein, you just think that your talent really isn't anything special. And I also then did learn that our intuition is really the voice for our unique best self. Now, we have voices in our head that are our logical mind. You know, those thinking and constant thoughts that go through your mind, not good enough, all that stuff. Well, that's the one that we tend to listen to, the voice that talks about what's happened and what we're afraid of. But in reality, we all have the higher self that knows our unique gifts, and that is our intuition. And our intuition knows what best out there needs us and is a match for our best skills. So learning that after 35 years, (laughs) I then gave up the jazzercise and kids were raised and I started really studying intuition and going to many masters and certifications throughout the country and realized that it really is our own in-house agent and everybody has it and it's our larger part of our intelligence system. Our logic is really only a smaller part of our huge intelligence system. So that's when I realized that many people think intuition is that woman thing, you know, but quite honestly, men use it when they say seat of their pants, their gut instinct. Mm -hmm. So it really is this huge intelligence system that we have that's uniquely there to guide us with who we uniquely are and what we are meant to do. But boy, that logical voice is really loud, isn't it? It's loud. It's loud. You're no good. You can't do that. (laughs) What in the world do you think... You know, you're crazy. Well, you're not good enough. If you think about when you start out, you're young and you're excited, and let's say you pretend being a cowboy or something, and Mm -hmm. you're very excited about that. 
riding that horse or whatever. And then we have our normal dysfunctional upbringing. Who doesn't have that? We go to school. We get graded, fair, good, not good enough, failure. And we start comparing everything we love to everything else. And in the book, that villain is called Conrad, King of Comparison, because if you compare for self-worth, then there will be none. So when you think of comparing, it's all on things you've seen, all on things in the past, and your logic goes one plus one is two, you're better, you're worse, and we start letting the smallest part of our mind tell us of our worth, you know, whose house is bigger, whose job is better, who's smarter, da-da-da. All of a sudden, the talent that you love to do, you put into comparing mode, and you can't possibly be good enough because talent is not is from the heart and it's not ever comparable. You know, the heart can never compare. So the book is about how to stop that logical voice and really go to what makes you feel full and invigorated and energetic. But many times we put on hold what's hurt us. And whenever we're hurt, we think it's because it's who we uniquely are. So we start protecting ourselves, we hide ourselves with overwork, overdrink, overwatch TV. We don't want that part of ourselves to get hurt again. And that's Overeat. Part of us. Right? <laughs> Over everything. I call it the overs. Yeah. 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 Well. So it's basically how to listen to your intuition, which is much smarter than your logical sense. Right. That higher self. And we'll talk more about that. But let's get into this fable a little bit. This uh, Talaga. Now, that's an interesting name. It is. We have a hard time saying it. Yes. yes <laughs> Don't we, but, Steve? <laughs> but Talaga, I mean, tell us about Talaga. Uh, well, let me back up by saying when the story came through, I was writing a book on uh, business owners who use intuition to make major decisions in their corporations. I was sitting to write this book, and I just, my body was dead, which is the first time your intuition is not on board. I could not get it on the paper, and all of a sudden, this fictional character came through me with this pink, smart, beautiful, kind of otherworldly creature, and this story started coming through me, which was fiction. Well, there was the tough part, because I didn't want to create. I wanted to write what other people said, (laughs) now I had to write this fictional story. So the story came about this young girl named Agatha. And it's this whole journey of her going through life and the troubles and how this Conrad, King of Comparison, is this big, gray, otherworldly guy that comes and sucks out all the colors and unique skills that you have. So who saves her is this character called Talaga. And when she came through, it's really this pink creature who is her higher intuition. And the story gives skills on exactly how to use it, how to listen to it, and Throughout this story, I never knew what to name these characters. And I was told, just name her Talaga, this high intuitive self. And I didn't know what it was. I went online, is this a name from India? Is it a name from here? I've never heard of Talaga. And without ruining the book, it wasn't until the very end where all of a sudden we found out why her name is Talaga. And I don't want to give it away because it's such a cool part of the story. So all of the names and characters are really archetypes, modern-day archetypes, these villains that each of us have in ourselves. And the the book has pictures of them. I hired this great artist who was able to interpret these pictures that came through me. And so there's a character, Conrad, which we all have to have that horrible king of comparison in us. We all have a character called Coates. And Coates is this, her overweight, 
body becomes this character called Coats, which helps protect her from being who she is because she's afraid she might be hurt. So, so Talaga is the name that came through me. Conrad is the name that came through me. There are several characters in there that have come through me as a way of us identifying them in our own selves. Well, we all carry around with us this boy or girl, this young person from our childhood, don't we? All those fears and all those, uh, just all that in, uh, all that trepidation about life. You know, how, <laughs> how are we ever going to find out, you know, how we fit in? And, of course, this story, this fable, is also an allegory for damaging a spirit. But at the same time, you've got this methodology for neutralizing and overcoming the trauma. Mm-hmm. That's just uh, the complete package. It is. It is. If you, we start out with this attitude. If you look at the little children around you, and you see you've got ten grandchildren, you look at the children, and we come fresh like that. We have this attitude of who wouldn't love us. You know, we we cry, someone picks us up, we giggle, someone laughs with us, we're hungry, we get fed, we touch and look and do what we love to do as kids. We our imagination. Well, as we fit into life and we get into the the non-dreamy world, as you say, or the non-daydreaming world, and we go to school and we fit in a box, and, and we're starting to fit in with what we're supposed to fit into what other people fit in. And that in and of itself is um, kind of things you need to learn. You need to learn math. You need to learn ways to fit in the world. But what it do is we start giving up what's unique about us. And then we start thinking that thing we love to do. I remember a girlfriend of mine, when she was little, she loved to boss people around. She was bossy, 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 bossy. She just saw the biggest picture and everything. And then when we go to school and we learn be quiet, sit down, you know, that's a unique talent she had. And then we go through life, and which is part of growing. I mean, you can't learn the positive without going through the negative. So we don't want to beat ourselves up for, for going through life and getting around, but it's time to come back to what that, higher self of us wants us to do. So, you know, I, I, for an example, what I like to say is I had a friend who, who in school, he was very nosy, and he could figure out every single thing somebody was doing. He was just like this great detective. Um, and so through life, you know, we learn, we kind of put that through, we, how on earth can we put that through into our skills in the world? Well, he was nosy and he was a great detective and he had the best sense of humor. And when, what he turned out doing was being an accountant and a very successful one. So even when we're doing something that seems like a normal job in the world, we still want to engage our talent. And he was nosy. He could figure out anything in his, in his accounting business. He had the best sense of dry humor. And he was able to really um, make that unique about his business. So that was his unique talent, not to bury that, not to fit into the box that all accountants fit in, but to use our unique gifts and really instill them in everything we do. And when we're in that position where we're excited and we're doing what we're great at what we're doing, you'll always get the next step from your intuition. When you step out of that excitement and you start worrying about what's happened yesterday, what's going to happen tomorrow, I've got to do this, and you shut that down and worry, you're never going to hear your next step. And what's interesting about intuition is when you get into that that flavor where you're excited and you just start doing something you like to do, whether it's daydreaming or writing or singing, just get into that mode and ask that question and your intuition will tell you the very next step. Now, what people don't like 
is, okay, I know the next step, but what's the next 10? <laughs> there you go. You know, but intuition isn't going to give you that. Mm. It's just going to get you to the next step because there's always other people involved mm. who are also a part of this, you know, what you might be doing. Let you see so, a little bit into the darkness, and so you step forward to, you know, you do. You have to go step off into on the faith. Unknown. Yeah, get into, go on your, down that road. Uh, I love what you say. This is a self-help fable, and it moves us from self-critical. We all can identify with that. But this is the point that's really exciting, from self-critical to self-thrilled. <laughs> I like that. Self-thrilled. Yes. It even feels good to say that. Self-thrilled. <laughs> <It does. laughs> yes. If you're self-critical, then you're thinking about what you should be and who you aren't and who you should be. You're in the logic. Okay, now I'm I'm manager. I should be, you know, a vice president or this. I mean, it's this whole logical thing of what happened, where do I go next? Never satisfied. So we're in this kind of trajectory of, of your one goal and you're in this one line. Um, and so you're always criticizing what you haven't got and you need to know what that person has. It's this whole horrible little one skinny little road. So to go to self-thrilled in that scenario you know, it's, oh, here I'm doing what I'm doing now, and I, and I get to be this humorous at it. I get to, now, for example, I learned what my unique skill is. I really can see in people what's special about them. So I say I can mine and polish diamonds in people. So whether I'm at the grocery store or I'm in my career path or I'm uh, writing a book, I know what excites me and what I'm good at. As I step into it, I know I can see what's unique about people and help them polish their diamonds. So so that's thrilling for me because that's unique and I get to do that. So when you find what's unique about you and it's been there since day one, you might have to dig a little bit and let your intuition tell you, you're going to be excited. So no matter what you're stuck in out there in the world, you're in control of what excites you. So it's a, the, the book is a journey of how to find out what is that unique diamond in you that you can instill no matter what your day is, no matter with your 10 grandchildren or your, your someone on the radio, there's a unique skill that you are born to share in this world that they need. And everybody, everybody has it, but it might not look what you normally think is like as a talent. So that's what this book helps you do, find out what that unique self-thrilling thing is, not self-critical, which is very rote and trying to fit into a path that someone else's. So I do like thrilling, too. It's kind of fun. It is. <laughs> uh, and no doubt you are the teacher, and I might even say you are the preacher. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do but, preach a lot, I have to say. I don't know if that's but, my talent, but no, I do it. <laughs> but you do it. And so we just have a little bit of time left. You don't have a lot of time left to give us an explanation on this next little thing I'd like to finish on, because it's rather controversial, but, boy, do we see a lot of overweight people around. And you say overeating starts as a form of self-love? Yes. We, nobody is born and wants to do things to hurt themselves. Who wants to, let me wake up tomorrow and become overweight. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so it, that's a form of self-hate. It's a form of self-love when all of a sudden, like, uh, let's say there's a lot of people who are overweight. There are some in, in, instances where there has been um, a self-abuse um, from parenting or something or, or someone gets raped or, or something. Mm -hmm. And so we feel like we got picked out and someone raped us and it's probably because it's who we are. And so whatever that special part of us is, I don't want that to get hurt ever again. 
that unique part, why did you pick me and rate me? There must be something I did, I uniquely. So we start covering it up. We don't want that part to ever get hurt again. So many times we overeat, we hide it, we overwork, we overdrink, we over sit and watch TV. We're still and we're hiding that special, special part of us because we love that part of us. And I will never, ever let it get hurt again. So that's what I mean by really if you go deep enough, it's a form of self-love. I love myself so much I don't ever want to get hurt again. So when we look at it that way, then we can start, I really love you more and trust you, and you, you get to come out again. I'll always protect that. So that's kind of what I mean by that. We've been listening to author Joyce Anderson, intuition educator. Her book, Talaga and Conrad, Intuition Knows What Best Wants to Happen. Joyce, tell us how to get your book. You can go to Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com. My website is ConversationsWithYourself.com, where you can get free episodes and exercises. So I really would love you to go to my website. Um, And also, it comes in e-reader of many forms, hardback. I recommend the hardback with the pictures and also e-book. Very, very good. Well, thank you so much for being with us on Author Talk. Thank you, Steve. Great talking to you. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Girlfriend It is on Toginet. Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central, with your hosts, Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan. This show is your chance to share, learn, laugh, and connect with other women. The girlfriend at principal was born out of loss. Lisa had recently had her mother pass away from cancer, and my mom um, was murdered. A man just walking into a room and started a 23-second shooting spree. I think one of the things we both realized going through those tragedies is that you can be extremely okay and be extremely sad. Check out Girlfriended.com and then be a part of Girlfriended, the radio show. Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central. You know, your boyfriend or, or your husband or whatever, they don't totally understand that emotional side to a woman like another woman does. And I think that's so important just to have mm-hmm. somebody that you go, she gets me. Check out the website, girlfriended.com. Don't miss Girlfriended with Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan. Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, The Easiest Weight Management and Smart Eating Program for Weight Loss. And the author is Philip Hamrick, and Phil joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Phil. Uh, 
Glad to meet you, Steve. Great to have you with us. Congratulations. You've lost 220 pounds and kept it off for quite a while. Yes, yes. Like I say, I had an obesity problem for the longest time. And uh, and what's good about it, I started this at 58, so it's not like uh, um, I was a young chicken or uh, easy, um, what do you call these other programs where the, the a lot of the, it, it, the younger you are, the easier it is to lose. There's no doubt about that. But I started at 58. I, uh, like I say, put the program together. It took me two years. I'm now 60. I've reached my gold, and I've kept it off. So you're 5'9". You used to weigh more than 425 pounds. Well, I said 5'9". Yep. You're 5'8", I guess. 5'8". Yes, yes. 5'8", used to exceed 425 pounds. Boy, you were a big boy. Oh, yeah. I was, that was probably at my highest around 440. Ooh. Ooh. And here you are two years later, and no diet fads, no pills, no surgery, no extra costs, no special foods. So, you know, obviously uh, we want to share some with our listening audience, but we're not going to tell you everything, folks. <laughs> you, you know, you've got to get into the details in the book, but uh, just kind of take us back uh, the way you were thinking back when you were 440, uh, you know, how you got yourself into this rut. Yeah, it was a um, uh, being obsessed with food, uh, which a lot of people uh, are doing now. Uh, it's available everywhere. Uh, we start eating, and, and I mean, this is what I did. I'm going to go through my own experience, and I don't know what other people have done, but I know in my experience as I started eating, uh, buffets become more available. Uh, you go to the restaurants, they serve double portions of what you should be getting, uh, food around the house, uh, junk food. Um, the, the food is just readily available, and over time, I've become obsessed with food, and I consider myself a uh, food addict, mm. and I just love food, so I uh, just ate myself to 440 pounds, and uh, you can only eat so I mean, your body burns so many calories a day. If you see that, you're going to, lose, you're going to gain weight, and uh, it didn't catch on to me until after I gained all the weight, and then I started having health problems, and then I knew it was time to wake up. I had to do something about it, and I had to uh, correct the problem. So this calories in, calories out, it's real basic, isn't it? I mean, this isn't rocket science. It's math, real simple, add and subtract. Right, that's correct. Uh, there are 3,500 calories in a pound, uh, and everybody's body is different, so not everybody is the same. It's depending on how tall you are, your metabolism, uh, your exercise routine, and some people can, uh, I, mean, I had a boss that could eat uncontrolled, and, and he never gained any weight. So, you know, and, and me, I didn't have to eat, and I would gain weight. So mm. everybody's metabolism is, is different. And as you get older, it changes, obviously. And gets harder. Yes, yes it gets it harder. It slows down, and you burn even less calories. So you're susceptible to uh, gaining more weight. So, yeah, that's what needs to be checked and in control. And, of course, on the media, in the media, all we see is ads, uh, TV, hear it on the radio, see the pictures, in the magazines and newspapers, all about this great-tasting food. It's almost, I mean, food is a business. It's not about health. People are selling food to make money. And that's correct. You're correct, Steve. I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, it's all about taste and all about price, it seems. 
and nothing about health. So we who love, you know, any human loves to eat. I mean, that's oh, uh, yeah, you know, <laughs> it's a hard thing. I know it's hard to push away from the table. It's oh. hard to leave a half, you know, take half with you right at the restaurant because everything right. gets loaded up these days. It's such huge portions. So when did, how did it start? What was the what was the? I know you said you had started having health problems, and maybe that was the trigger. Was that the trigger? Um, yes. Uh, well, that was the biggest trigger. I mean, I've been uh, you know you go out, uh, you see your weight go up, and you're like you say, okay, when I was in my three hundreds, I'm like, okay, I'm at three hundred, and then I started staying off the scales, and next thing I know, I was four hundred, you know, and and so. Um, I started developing uh, like blood pressure problems. Uh, I never had it before. Even when I was heavy, I'd go to the doctor. My blood pressure would be pretty good. Well, at the end here, it got out of whack. It was like 150 over 110, which is very, very high. And uh, that was one trigger. And I said, man, i got to get this under control. And like you, again, I don't like pills. And so uh, he put me on blood pressure medicine. Uh, I started feeling my pulse in my back around my kidney area, you know, when I what would do stressful things, and I knew that was bad. So, you know, the the more the weight was, the more my knees, I couldn't run any distance. Uh, walking was real hard, walking and standing. I couldn't walk and stand for long periods of time. So uh, that was a wake-up call, and, and being 58, I'm like, you know, i got to do something because I may not make 59 because uh, of... Uh, these other problems setting in, diabetes, I was starting to have diabetic uh, symptoms. Uh, you know, so things just added up to where I knew I had to do something about it. Well, this is an easy-to-read book. It's not very long. What is it, uh, some 70 pages, 80 it's pages? 78 pages, I oh, think it is. Yeah, it's so very it, short. It's, it's very short and straight to the point. So let's talk about a few of these details. We certainly want to share some facts with everyone, what really happened, how, how uh, you figured it out. Uh, You've you've got one about putting a plan together. So talk about this. Put a, put a plan together. Uh, put, put a plan together involves a couple things. Um, number one is that if you're overweight or you haven't exercised for a period of time, number one you got to see a doctor to make sure that you're healthy enough to do some type of exercise and to maybe help you on your diet plan. Well, okay, I'm using that dirty word diet. Your weight management plan to be able to get your weight under control. Um, so the first thing is to do a, a doctor's visit if you haven't. Now, if you've already seen a doctor, I'm sure some of them probably suggested that you do some type of a plan to lose weight. Uh, so, so that's the first step. Uh, puts get a couple tools together. You know, you might get you know, a cheap blood pressure cuff or uh, some measuring devices. Uh, I've got I bought a, a little cheap digital scale to weigh my food. Uh, a lot of the food uh, you buy now is already pre-labeled. It already tells you what calories are involved in it. So it makes it real simple. So it's not a hard math thing to figure out. It, it's straightforward. Uh, so that's the biggest thing is, is to sit down and uh, figure out some type of a plan. And there's different types of plans. In my book, I've got uh, what may work for me, may not work for you. But the thing is, is put something together that works for you that you can work with, you know, because uh, someone telling you to do something, the first thing you're going to do is, well, you may do it for a week. And, oh, this is hard. Well, I can't do right. it any longer. Well, put the plan together that you can work with, whether it be uh, you know, cutting out certain foods or limit yourself to certain things. Everything, again, back is the math. 
no, and it's not hard, okay? I mean, that sounds like it's very hard, but it's not hard to be able to go back and learn new good uh, weight management and eating program to be able to uh, lose weight and keep it off. Never make a promise you can't keep. That's what I heard many, many years ago. Great wisdom in that simple little phrase. And and that's the biggest thing. And uh, like I say, what worked for me may not work for you, but the book has multiple things in there that you can put together to put your own plan together in order to uh, help it work for you. Now, when you start out, when you're... We'll use use you obviously as the example. You're 440 pounds. You're five eight. Uh, it's hard to get going. Uh, like, what did you start doing? Just let's just talk about exercise. What what's the first thing you started doing? I started walking. Uh, and going, then you probably uh, couldn't walk short... that far when you first started. No, I could. Uh, I started less than a third of a mile mm-hmm. walking. Now, as far as running, I couldn't run 20 yards right. without being out of breath and. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, and I started uh, because of my weight. And again, I, you don't want to do more than your body allows you to do anyway, because you end up hurting yourself. Right. So what I did, I started like it was less than a third of a mile, and then every week or every month, I'd add a little bit to it. So I worked up to a mile, and then I worked up to two miles. Now I'm doing, I'm running actually five wow. miles three days a week now. Wow, well, that's just wonderful. Uh- I know when I was back running 5Ks, when I first got into that, uh, I used this uh, advice, never increase it more than 10%. And so that's, right. that's yep. kind of what I did. And you know when I did, I would, I would pull a muscle or something. I got a little cocky. Oh, I feel great, and I can do this. <laughs> you know, right. The right. body went, no, you can't. <laughs> but that's, that's the biggest thing is start slow yeah. and add a little bit at a time. That's yeah. it. You've got to be really – I mean, you had to be really patient, and you had to be – you're, you're, someone said, so you've got to have a big why you're doing this. Your, big, your why was, you know, obvious uh, at that moment. You had health problems, and your why was pretty big. Oh, yes, and uh, like I say, it's like do something about it now, or you may not have a chance tomorrow. Mm-hmm. You may not have a chance. So when you first started out at that weight, how many calories a day did you allow yourself? You obviously you had to bring it down from what you were, and probably before it was out of control. But what, what would where'd you start at? What was your uh, threshold level t- to start? At my okay, at my at my baddest, and, and at worst I should say, at baddest is probably a bad word. Uh, at my worst, uh, at my top calorie rate, I was estimated I was eating over. 4,500 calories a day, probably. And so that was to maintain my weight at about 450 pounds. So what they recommend in research is you shouldn't lose any more one or two pounds a week for Mm -hmm. a couple of reasons. And so um, if you cut out 1,000 calories a day, it'll put you down to about uh, two pounds a week. So what I did was I limited myself to 3,500 calories. That was my start. Mm-hmm. and I lost two pounds. I did. I was averaging one or two pounds a week, and as my weight went down, I decreased those calorie intakes. So mm-hmm. when I got down to 300 pounds, I went down to 2,500 calories a day, you know, and so mm-hmm. I just limited it as I went down until I got to my goal weight, and now I'm at 2,000. I, I try to stay at 2,000 calories a day to maintain my current weight. And what is your current weight? My current weight right now is like 210. 210. Wow. Wow. That is... You're you're uh, you're half the man you used to be. 
Uh, yeah, yeah, that's what I say. Tell people I'm trying to disappear a little at a time. Half the man, but a greater man, a healthier man, yeah. uh, you know, all the above man. That's just wonderful. So uh, as this decreased, uh, was it, you must have got excited. I mean, as you started to see this happen, you know, you can lose a pound or two or five, ten pounds, obviously even 20, 30, at the size you were, you probably had done that many a time. But when did you first really get excited? Uh, when I could look down and see my rib cage. Oh, okay. <laughs> so how many pounds well, had you lost then to see your rib cage? <laughs> no, well, it you know, like I say, as your weight disappears and goes down. Yeah. And what makes it, it, it's really hard. And, and you hit the phases of uh, uh, a disappointment or it's like you want tomorrow to come fast because you want to get rid of the weight. Sure. But the problem is that in order to lose it right, you can't lose it fast because I like to say fast off, fast on. Right. And you'll be more susceptible to break your eating habits because you you don't want to cut too many calories because then you start developing cravings. Yeah, so the yo-yo. So that's why you have to cut back a little at a time. And you could eat anything you want. The problem you just have to identify what you're eating and try to figure out the oh. calorie count. And limit yourself on a daily, like I say, if it's 2,000 a day, then stay within that 2,000 okay. a day. Okay, that's easy to do at home, but now you go out to eat. How do you do that just in the closing uh, time we have left? How do you deal with going out to eat? What I do before I go to any restaurant, and then after, a lot of times we go to the same restaurants over and over and over again, so we have an idea of what we're going to order. But you can go out online and you can actually hit the meals that they offer. And they'll give you a calorie account. Most of the restaurants offer that. Uh, and they also offer it inside. You can also, a lot of the restaurants or the fast foods mostly have a calorie counter on the wall, which is good. And if they don't have one, you can estimate it or guess what, don't eat there. Because it, I found one restaurant I couldn't find a calorie count. And when I did estimate it, everything was so high in there. And so I don't even go to that restaurant anymore because everything in there is just so uh, high calorie. But uh, it all restaurants, you can pretty much determine when you order a meal, it's going to be a double serving. So the first thing I get is a take-home box. And anything that I can take home and eat as another meal, I'll cut in half, mm-hmm. put it in the take-home box. I'll take it home and eat it tomorrow. And so, that's pretty much worked as far as being able to uh, be able to eat anywhere. And, again, too, I mean, I, I used to order the 16-ounce steak. So I love steak and meat, and the thicker the better. But I've cut down to where I order like the 8 or 12, or, you mm-hmm. know, I've also cut the you, size you, of the meal out. Do you eat more often throughout the day? I've often heard that. Eat smaller amounts throughout the day. Do you do that? You, you can do that also. Mm-hmm. Um, um, yeah, well, some days I do. If, if I have a meal plan for the day, I'll do that. If something comes up unexpectedly, uh, then I have to drop back and punt, what I call, and uh, reestimate my calories and, I may have to, like I say, chop things in half to where I save them for another day. So, uh, and a big yeah, part of you this, you can also eat small meals through the day, which helps too, because then you never get hungry. And a big part of your program is to keep a diary. That's correct. Keep a diary as long as you can. Now, once you get into a good eating habit, you really can do away with the diary because then you're programmed to be able to identify what you're eating and through the mm-hmm. day. And like now, I'll say, okay, today I've had. I already know how many calories I've had. And I know how many I have left for me the rest of the day. So, But a diary is very important when you're starting out the program so you can identify what you're eating 
and try to keep some type of a calorie count so you can learn what you're eating. And like tomorrow, say, hey, you know, I ate that donut yesterday. That was a third of my calories for the day. I don't want it today, you know. And right. so you know what to cut out and, and try to make yourself eat healthier and better. What I like about your book also, you have these appendixes, uh, you know, you have A through G, and you got essential vitamins and nutrients needed every day during weight loss. you got foods that suppress your appetite and keep you fuller longer Foods that will boost your immune system, foods that fight fat, best foods to eat while you're dieting and weight loss, uh, the nutritional fat, uh, fact food label, and food items, quick calorie reference. So you're really technical, too, just for the – you got it all. Yeah, like I said, I put it in there small, straight to the point, and uh, right. an aid to help anybody. You know, like I say, it wants to get on a, a plan to help themselves lose weight. Phil, tell us how to get your book, The Easiest Weight Management and Smart Eating Program for Weight Loss. Yeah, it's it's sold out on, uh, you can get it on Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble offers it, and uh, BookstoreAuthorHouse.com also has it online. Thank you so much, Phil, and congratulations again. Uh, Somewhere down the road, uh, maybe you'll write another book when you're uh, down another 50 or... (laughs) Yeah, that's my hope. I want to lose another 30 pounds. I'm going to use this program. I mean, it works, and uh, it's been really, really easy. Well, thank you, Phil, for being with us on Author Talk. Thanks, Steve. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Have you been laid off, fired, downsized, right-sized, or re-engineered out of a job? Are you unemployed or anticipate that possibility? Then tune in for Successfully Unemployed, hosted by Alan Sherwood, MBA, president of Sherwood Consulting Service. Successfully Unemployed will provide you a hope-filled and comprehensive approach to the job search process from an author who's experienced it all. Alan and his guests will cover all dimensions of a job search, physical tasks, mental attitude, emotional health, even one spiritual perspective. All must be integrated in order for a person to be successfully unemployed so they can then be successfully employed. This show is designed to help you move forward from job loss to finding or creating more fulfilling work. For more on Alan Sherwood, MBA, and the show, check out his website, SuccessfullyUnemployed.com. Then join us for Successfully Unemployed with Alan Sherwood, MBA. Thursday nights at 8, 7 Central here on Toginet.com. Is there more living for you to do? Yes. Start living inspired. Be here for Living Inspired with Trisha Goyer. Thursday afternoons at 4, 3 p.m. Central on Toginet.com. Trisha will dig deep into topics that matter most to women, inspiring women to make a change in their own lives and to make a difference in the world, and maybe even deep within their own hearts. Trisha is a wife, mom, speaker, family expert, and author of 24 books. For more information on Trisha and Living Inspired, go to her website, TrishaGoyer.com. That's T-R-I-C-I-A-G-O-Y-E-R.com. Trisha's vision is to be the voice of hope and possibility for women of all ages. Her intention is to serve ordinary women by encouraging extraordinary things with God's help. Trisha expresses real life, real hope for real women. Is there more living for you to do? Yes. Start living inspired. Living Inspired with Trisha Goyer. Thursday afternoons at 4, 3 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, Foretold by M.P. Manila, inspired by actual events in ancient prophecies, and 
Mary joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Mary. Hi, Steve. Great to have you with us. Well, this is an incredible story. Uh, Unfortunately, it could happen because this is based on actual events, real news, uh, real government policy, and you'll tell us all the details in a moment. But you say this, uh, this book is about a terrorist plot to blow up the government's high-level nuclear waste repository at Yucca Mountain, Nevada. And that threatens to fulfill a Hopi prophecy that this world will be destroyed by poison brain. So that's the basic bottom line theme. Of course, we've got some incredible characters, twists and turns, and all kinds of intrigue, and and even romance, right? Oh, yes. Had to have that in <laughs> Had there. to have that in. When it comes to the end of the world, you've got to have a little romance in it. Definitely. Well, tell us about yourself, Mary, before we get into the details of the book. Give us a little bit about your background and why you decided to do this. Well, um, I'm a former journalist. I worked for a newspaper, Newsday, and then I worked for CBS TV News in New York City. And, uh, and I became a producer of a weekly news magazine, TV news magazine show, and that's when I started researching the story about Yucca Mountain to do a story about it. And, of course, I became, like, horrified and shocked. And then I found something out very that just really fascinated me, because ever since I was a kid, I was fascinated by Native American culture. You know, maybe it was playing cowboys and mm-hmm. Indians. But I went out to Nevada because they were having a big public hearing about the government one plans to build an underground repository for high-level nuclear waste. You know, that includes uh, weapons quality, uranium and plutonium. And they uh, wanted to build it under Yucca Mountain, which is like 100 miles from Las Vegas and very near the San Andreas Fault. And uh, their proposal was really very controversial because there were nuclear physicists from Los Alamos there and geologists and legislators and local people, and everyone was protesting not to build the repository at that spot because it's the, most, uh, it's the third most active earthquake zone on the continent. And it's also 33 fault lines in the area, about 30 uh, volcano cones, 10 of which are active. And it's all over a huge underground aquifer of water that's been there since uh, that area was an inland sea in a Jurassic swamp. And uh, so I was asked one of the scientists there, you know, well, why is it so dangerous? And he, he explained it to me. I asked him to put it in layman's language. And he said, look, when atomic waste decays, it throws off heat. And that heat would be absorbed by the walls of the tunnel. So if you introduce water, you know, there's an earthquake. And those fault lines, like, open and close. And they act as free flow channels. They would act that way. And the water would come up into the chamber. And that it would hit the hot rocks and it would turn into steam. And it would be like a pressure cooker, and it would blow the top off the mountain. And all this radioactive material would go into the environment, be absorbed by the clouds and carried around and fall back down. And we're talking about a huge, beyond comprehension amount. Uh, what, what, how many tons? How many 80,000 tons. tons. And 80, I was told by one of tons. the scientists there, that's enough to kill every man, woman, and child in the country. Don't forget that in Chernobyl, there was only 20 tons involved. 
And look what that did. That affected 100,000 square miles, and a plume of radioactivity went all around the globe. And, you know, thousands of people were affected. It was, and this would be 80,000 tons. I mean, this would be, so, what, 80,000 times so worse? So it, it came out that this was not a good thing to do. Uh, Senator Harry Reid from Nevada, of course, the head of the Senate, he said it simply wasn't safe. And Bill Clinton, the president, vetoed it. What That's happened? right. And then, and then three weeks after George Bush was elected president, uh, he overturned that veto, and he also appointed about 35 uh, former lawyers and lobbyists and executives from the energy industry into very influential posts in his government. And if you will recall, there was a lot of talk that uh, Vice President Cheney had people from the energy industry rewriting the energy policy for the government. So uh, everything, and, and we had been told in the beginning this was going to cost like $16 million in the last estimate I heard was something in the neighborhood of $90 billion. And they wanted to expand the repository, make it three times as large. Uh, you know, that's the Department of Energy talking. So it's a very real danger, and I was very upset that our government, our own government that we elect to sort of protect us, was only thinking in terms of what I call it, self-interest, with our lives at stake. And then something very eerie happened. I couldn't get this story out of my mind because it was, it was just so upsetting. And I was browsing through some books, and there was a book called Touch the Earth, which had a letter from the Hopi Indians to President Nixon. And it was talking about what, their ninth prophecy. You see, the Hopis think uh, there's, uh, that they were the first people on this earth, and they were appointed by the Creator to protect uh, the welfare of this world. They're the guardians of the world. So they wrote this letter to uh, Nixon saying that to fulfill their responsibility, the Creator gave them nine prophecies of what would happen in the future. And the ninth and last prophecy is how this world would be destroyed. And I read that prophecy, and the hair on the back of my neck just, mm. just stood up. Because you have to remember that this prophecy was not even translated until the end of the Indian Wars, when uh, anthropologists in the Smithsonian went out and visited the Hopi. And uh, so they translated it into English. Now that's, what, 1876 or something. And no one ever even imagined an atomic bomb. But what the prophecy said was, if dust from this dust, uh, if the underground is disturbed, dust from this operation will rise into the sky and be absorbed into the clouds, from which it will fall in the form of rain into our lakes and rivers, and we will drink of this water, and we will all sicken and die. And that was an incredible description of radioactive fallout. Mm -hmm. Now, right. I had just come from the Yucca Mountain. I'm reading this, this prophecy, and I'm thinking, this is quite a story. It's and that's more, really what led to my writing the book. It's more than quite a story, because every time you base a story on real facts and events, uh, and in this case, you've got this prophecy, it, it does 
have the hair on the back of your neck stand out, doesn't it? Oh, and the terrorist angle, <laughs> yes, too, because right. they wanted to build, they planned to build that as an unguarded facility on the theory that no one's going to try to cut nuclear waste across an open desert. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there were stories in the New York Times, and all of this is in the afterword of the, um, of okay. the book. And, of well, course, I have cabinet full of Well, let's of get reports. into the fictionalized part of the story. Of course, we have this, as you describe her, tell us about this rebellious daughter of the uh, Hopi clan leader. That she's a main, main character. Yes. Well, she, she is, is and uh, her former boyfriend, and we won't discuss this. This is a personal story of my life. But uh, she and her, uh, her former boyfriend is an, uh, an army officer. They sort of get together again because they both want to put an end to this danger. And uh, she's, uh, you know, he doesn't want to do it. He's a soldier, and he knows all about these things. And he and his buddy are going to find who out this terrorist is, and they're going to close everything down. But she, um, of course, has the Hopi, uh, the strength behind her, and the, the, what the Hopi is, mystical qualities. They're a very, very mystical um, tribe, and they're believed to have all kinds of magical powers. And so she has this behind her, and this is what uh, they enlist the aid of a shaman. And with with that and and with their own skills and determination, they find the terrorist and they um, and basically thwart the plan and kill him. But it's all very possible. It's all very possible. There's there are stories in the New York Times printed that uh, uh, Islamic fundamentalists have infiltrated the prisons and they are enlisting, uh, mm-hmm. you know, help. Mm-hmm. So as we speak, this project moves forward. Yes. In fact, just last week in Congress, according to the Huffington Post, uh, a bill was introduced to uh, you know, keep the uh, process moving. And as I said, they want to expand it and put three times as much waste in the, in the tunnels. And this would really be... If anyone, if anything ever happened, if any water got into that, if, I mean, as you know, this is very volatile. And if one of those casks of waste blows up, it will set off a chain reaction. The whole thing will blow up. It's extremely dangerous, extremely reckless, and it's our lives that are on the line. And the, our lives are being put there by our own government. Well, they, so, seem, they seem to disregard the welfare of the people. Uh, I mean, the news is filled with that kind of coverage. Uh, but tell us about the translating of this highly technical information and even this mystical supernatural language that would really get down to the point where it could be a readable, exciting, interesting story. That must have been well, quite a challenge. You know, well, you know, that was my job always as a journalist. Uh, you do take, you know, very technical stories or very confusing stories, and you have to put it into a form that will, inf- you know, tell people that they'll understand and that they'll find interesting enough to even bother reading it. So that's, you know, what it came down to in this book. I uh, I spent uh, 10 years researching this book and writing it, mm. and because it was a novel and not a journalism story or a, a TV documentary, I even went to the Writers' Center at Marymount uh, College in New York City, and I took all kinds of workshops 
and I went to writers' conferences, and I learned how to um, write. And I I was very flattered when Bill Thompson, the Doubleday editor who discovered Stephen King and John Grissom, uh, he read the manuscript. He said, this is a potential blockbuster. And he even wrote me a note, which I have framed on the wall over my computer. You tell a very good story, and you tell it with fluency and pacing. You are right up there with the early John Grissom. Wow. Well, yep. Fantastic. That's well, it would make, it would so make a blockbuster it. movie, that's for sure. It would be oh. incredible. Uh, it was optioned actually to three times for a movie, but apparently, the, you know, it's a case of money. Mm. And right. this is a big movie. This is, but yes. it's a big story. But I tried to make it exciting, and and people who have read it, I've gotten uh, some very good comments on it. Uh, it's coming out at the bookstores and libraries in the fall edition of the book distribution companies, but it's already available on Amazon, and I've had. Uh, some very good comments from people. Do you think and, it? Do you think uh, it interests readers of all ages, or is it more focused on a certain uh, age group? No, it's written as an. Uh, it's really an adventure story. It's a thriller. It's a suspense, and it has it has a wonderful romance in it. What about and guys? Will, guys will enjoy it, and women will enjoy it. And really, it's really about us and our right, welfare. Right. What about? What about it? really believing in the supernatural beliefs of the uh, Hopi Indians. Well, they they believe in it. And they and when you go out to the southwest and you talk to people about the Hopi, uh people know them very well and you know they they are said uh people go to them for healing and they are I mean, they are said, uh, you know, people tell a miraculous story and that they can uh, cast, they have what they call a magic eye, they can see uh, other things and they have great prophetic uh, uh, powers. And in fact, uh, they had a big scandal about 100 years ago. Some of them were practicing witchcraft and that was forbidden because they're only supposed to use these powers for good. But the shamans are said uh, to have incredible curing powers. In fact, I was even told that they could raise the dead. Is this a political book? Uh, no, I don't consider it a political book at all. I consider it um, a, a warning, a suspense warning. I mean, if I, I, I'm not a political person, and I, I would read this book, but I would certainly want to say to my legislator, if you vote to have this, atomic waste put in there, I will certainly vote you out of office. It's time you started thinking of the people who elect you and not the special interests who give you money. Well, it's beyond comprehension, obviously, Uh, when you have real news, real facts, uh, real life, and it turns into a, a novel. But this is being built as we speak, and it looks like they're going to just fulfill that whole uh, directive, isn't it? Are they going to well, do it? Well, they're determined. They're determined. They just don't give up. It, it's like, you know, this thing about Obamacare where they keep submitting a bill 37 times. They just keep pounding away to open this, and they will not stop. They're very, very determined people because the energy industry is like a government in itself. It's, it has so much power and so much influence. And it just 
you know, it's like uh, the people who say there's no global warming. They say, oh, don't be silly. Nothing's going to happen. It's going to be all right. And they just ignore it because they think if they repeat something enough, we're all just going to sit back and say, oh, okay, guys, do whatever you want. Uh, what about our children? What about our grandchildren? Right. You know, in Chernobyl, um, there are children, uh, the, the uh, fallout there changed DNA. I have seen photographs uh, of, of what has happened to infants with arms growing out of their, their chests and mm. their, their skulls open and their brains exposed. My goodness. Yeah, well, it's, it's horrible right. what this does. It's a horrible death and it's a horrible destiny. We've been listening to Mary Manila. She is the author of her book, Foretold, by M.P. Manila. It's inspired by actual events and ancient prophecies, as we have been discussing. Mary, tell us how to get your book. Uh, well, it, as I said, it will be in the fall. It's going to be uh, distributed, hopefully, to bookstores and libraries. But right now, it's available on Amazon and on Kindle. And I do hope you'll read it because it's it's a good story. It's a very exciting and interesting story to read. And I worked very hard to do that because I know people aren't going to read a boring book. Well, thank you, Mary, for being with us on Author Talk. You have not been at any in any shape or form boring, that's for sure. We can tell your passion. Thank you, Steve. I guess I do feel strongly, and I hope <laughs> everyone will. <laughs> 